Welcome to the PaxX Podcast, available on iTunes. This is episode 44 of the show where we talk about everything to do with the passenger experience. I'm Mary Kirby, and I'm joined by my co-host, Max Flight. Max, how are you doing? Doing well, Mary. We're recording early in the day. It's not really the crack of dawn, but for an old retired guy, it's kind of the crack of the day. <laughs> that sounds uh, interesting, Max. I've got a feeling we're going to be talking about some cracks in the passenger experience here shortly. I think so, yes. Okay. Well, before we get started, we'd like to thank eGate Solutions for sponsoring this week's podcast. We all want happy passengers. They buy more and they're likely to be more loyal to your airline. But delivering a positive passenger experience is hard when you're relying on legacy systems and manual processes. eGate Solutions provides the technology behind onboard services, connecting and automating every step of an airline's operations from the warehouse to the passenger. With eGate, you can spend less time and money on the process and more on optimizing the passenger experience which really is what we are all in the business of delivering. Visit eGate Solutions online at www.egate-solutions.com or email them at info at egate-solutions to learn more. Now, it's my great pleasure to introduce our guest today. John Walton, who's joined us before, is both an aircraft interiors and travel expert, a global nomad. John pens the hugely popular upfront column on Runway Girl Network, as, many, as well as many articles covering passenger safety, comfort, connectivity and services. He is also a regular contributor to Australian aviation and other titles. And he has been interviewed by myriad news agencies and publications. I believe it was just Al Jazeera this morning. John, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Mary. If it's uh, this morning, it's Doha. If it's tomorrow, it's Seattle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, John, it's great to be talking with you again. And let's take a look at some of the PaxX news stories that are making headlines. First, and this is a big one, passengers on foreign airlines headed to the United States from 10 airports in eight majority Muslim countries have been prevented from carrying laptops and tablets under a new directive by the Trump administration. Now, the UK later issued a similar ban. And John, you've been tracking this story ever since it got started. What are the details of these bans and what does it mean for passengers? Well, it's interesting, Max. So one of the things that I don't think any of us were expecting to do with our Monday nights was read a tweet from Royal Jordanian as the first announcement that passengers from a number of countries were being banned from bringing their larger personal electronic devices with them into the cabin. Um, you know, 48 hours in, <laughs> we have a little more information, um, but a lot of inconsistency. So currently, you know, whereas last week passengers were completely forbidden from packing these devices into the hold uh, because of the safety concerns with their lithium ion batteries catching fire, now passengers are being directed to do just that. Um, we have the US ban covering 10 countries, the UK ban covering eight countries, um, Australia saying that they don't see the need to impose any ban whatsoever, the UK banning only laptops, tablets and phones larger than around an iPhone 7 Plus, but the US including other devices as well, like cameras, which of course um, don't take particularly well to being thrown around in the hold of an aircraft. And indeed, the UK does not include the UAE or Qatar in its ban. Um, the US is banning uh, passengers flying Emirates, Etihad and Qatar Airways. Uh, the UK is not, which obviously raises some questions as to why. John, uh, you know, it, there's so many questions, actually, my goodness. Um, it's kind of a, a, a quite stunning. But then when you put it into the context of uh, Donald Trump's um, attempted travel ban, you know, not so long ago, perhaps less stunning. Um, obviously, we need to note that these are majority Muslim countries, right? Well, Exactly. 
And not only that, but there's quite a lot of context here. Um, you know, from, from what I've been able to gather from the threat side of things, um, and, and for background, I have a, uh, a master's in international relations with a specialty in uh, preventing jihadi-based terrorism in the West. So I have a reasonable grasp on what, what the situation is here. What we likely have is relatively advanced bomb makers from uh, groups like Al-Qaeda on the Arabian Peninsula, who you may remember from the uh, Dalo Airlines flight in February 2016, where um, that terrorist blew a hole in the side of an A321 and mm-hmm. got himself sucked out. Yes. Um, they are fairly sophisticated bomb makers. But at the same time, um, there are questions about whether or not the, uh, the, the way in which this plan has been carried out is going to actually solve those bomb making uh, threat issues. And also the wider context. Um, You know, the US has been making protectionist noises against the UAE uh, and Qatari airlines. Um, The US has been taking action against people coming from Muslim countries. And it's not unreasonable to say, are these things linked? Right. It's uh, it's certainly not unreasonable at all. And, and we'd like to remind our, obviously, listeners that uh, the, the big three major airlines in the United States, American Delta and United, have been waging a very long running, uh, call it lobbying campaign or war, against uh, the very successful Middle East Three, of course, which includes Emirates and Etihad and Qatar Airways. Max, uh, from your perspective, do you think that we should be looking at this from the standpoint of just a threat isolated in and of itself? Or do you think there's something broader, a geopolitical situation occurring here? I think it's going to be impossible for us to really tell. Uh, mm-hmm. Kind of unfortunately, there are two issues here. Of course, there's the the motivation for this, and then there's the effect on the passenger experience. And I guess we can get to that in just a second. But sticking with the political side, if there is a credible threat, or if there are trends in the bomb making capabilities of terrorists or others that indicate that onboard electronics could represent a you know a potential uh, problem. Uh, <laughs> I guess we have to take the word of, you know, of the government. We don't have any way to verify, I don't think, independently, uh, other than just observing the activities of other countries. But I don't know, John, is that, is that reliable or am I off base in saying that we'll never really know? I think we can certainly know. I think there, there are some you know, real questions of logic to apply here. Um, so the way that this ban has been carried out, you know, only affecting a very limited number of countries overall, but some key transit hubs that uh, you know that, that are uh, subject to this ban. Um, it rather predicates the idea that the terrorists are clever enough to be able to fit bomb-making components into a Kindle, smuggle them through security through X-rays, uh, swab detection, um, the good old turn it on and do something with it test. Um, they can do all of that, but they can't connect via Lagos or Johannesburg or Mumbai or Karachi or other airports that aren't covered in this. I mean, we just saw on Twitter just now, um, Pakistan International Airlines um, tweeting out, did you know you can carry your laptops and tablets on board US-bound PIA flights? <laughs> um, you know, which, which, you know, fair play to them. But I cannot see how Karachi would be a lower threat than uh, Abu Dhabi or Doha or Dubai. I mean, in Abu Dhabi, there is such close cooperation with the US that Etihad has its own US border and customs pre-immigration station, right? Um, if these are the guys who blew up that Somali plane, these airports are not Mogadishu, right? They are arguably more secure than a lot of the other airports which are not affected. 
And right. it just it just doesn't seem logical um, from based on what we do know that this is the way to combat this threat as identified. It is a big head scratcher. And, you know, the International Air Transport Association says that it is reviewing uh, this. I mean, I guess airlines need to potentially brace for it to be widened. John, do you think that's fair to say that that I mean, it's it, well, it seems like it's only fair because. Yeah. I mean, look, if, if the in, pain in should be felt across planning, the board. <laughs> no, no, look, Mary, in, in terms of my personal planning, um, the way that this has been done is has been so um I, I'm struggling for a word other than incompetent, um, because, you know, if you remember, 11 years ago when the liquid ban came in, that happened one day worldwide and, you know, not news trickling out via some airline's Twitter account, it taking 20 hours for the US government to to even announce it, and then there being different rules in the UK and Australia to the US. That's not how this stuff is normally done. Now, for, for my personal travel, I happen to be planning a trip to the US next week. Um, I'm fully expecting, though hoping not to, have to pack uh, my DSLR camera, my laptop, and other anything larger than a phone into the hold. Now, because I'm planning now for next week, I can make those arrangements. You know, I can make sure that I um, do bring a neoprene laptop sleeve and, you know, I select a piece of checked baggage. Um, you know, business travellers aren't going to be keen on checking their only carry-on, are they? But, you know, that I'm, I'm, I can make arrangements to really try and um, make this as smooth as possible and to minimise the chance that uh, any of my possessions are broken. Um, but that's going to be a problem. You know, I, I can fully predict that we're going to get to some situation where someone's laptop's going to go in a hold, the baggage cart is going to run over their suitcase, and the laptop's going to be falling out of the bag on the conveyor belt. Right? Mm -hmm. that's, that's kind of a given. Or worse, uh, we have a, a situation uh, whereby it becomes a safety issue and a fire hazard in flight. Indeed. You know, Indeed. because these bags are getting thrown around, you know, moved around. Um, uh, Max, you know, can a, a, I guess the whole notion of imagine being told you've got to pack your, <laughs> pack your laptop, which for many of us is our lives and our livelihoods <laughs> into checked luggage. It's also a safety issue here. Um, you know, there's some very well-known risks. Um, and, and as you say, John, and this is actually something that you wrote about in an initial piece for us on Runway Girl, you know, we went from last week, this not being a viable option, to this week, oh, throw those lithium-ion batteries in your bag. Um, how do you make that leap from a safety standpoint? With a great suspension of disbelief, I would yeah. imagine. And I think that for the problem for me at the moment is that I don't see that this is markedly increasing security but it is markedly decreasing safety. Um, you do not want these large electronic devices with their lithium batteries inexpertly packed in a plane hold. After being tossed from baggage handler to baggage Precisely. handler. If you try and mail a phone, um, you know, let's say I, I, I was um, standing in the post office in Australia waiting to send a postcard, which feels very um, last millennium. But um, I was watching a, a man try and send a mobile phone somewhere. And he brought it in in a, one of those little um, uh, jiffy bags, right, with the, um, that bubble wrap stuff inside. Um, and they were very clear about the fact that he had to mail it in a box that was X percent larger than the phone, pack it in a certain way, identify it completely, ensure that the box was labelled and everything, and that's just to 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 ship it in the post, right? Um, and now we have passengers who are probably literally at the boarding uh, at the check-in desk, being told, "Oh yeah, put that in your luggage." So you know, it's kind of like flying one of those LCCs where you have to pull out three or four kilos of luggage to be able to get your 
your bag in. So you're going to be sort of kneeling down on the floor in the check-in and people aren't going to be packing that well. People aren't going to be instructed because airlines don't have guidelines for this. They're not going to be yep. told how to pack a laptop when all of the guidelines have been, don't pack a laptop. Yeah. You know, it's a danger, I think. I think there are also some implications for business travelers here. I mean, one is a security issue. When you give up physical possession of your laptop, the, the security risks go way, way up because it's easy for someone just to slip a a USB drive with a key logger into your computer when you don't have it in your possession and, and that sort of thing. So that's one issue. But the other is that uh, business travelers are used to using the time in flight to work. And without a laptop, that's kind of difficult. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I predict a lot of high rise in repetitive strain injury from people trying to type on a phone. <laughs> um, and, and, and put. <laughs> You know, I, look, potentially there, there are um, those little Bluetooth keyboards that you can get. Those, those have been popular. Um, I suspect those might become more popular if they, um, if you can get one that is within the, uh, the, the size barrier for this new BAM. But um, I certainly think that there are some lessons to be learned from this, both in terms of how it was carried out uh, and in the way that it was been, uh, been announced. Um, it doesn't seem to have been up to... Um, the previously outlined international standard, which I think is unfortunate. There's also, of course, the in-flight entertainment aspects of this, people using devices <laughs> to uh, keep themselves amused. Uh, the one uh, comment in this regard that I thought was most amusing was uh, a parent complaining that how are they going to be able to keep their children occupied for the flight without a yes. tablet or a computer? To which uh, my wife immediately responded, Read them a book. <laughs> what a novel thought. But, but seriously, for most people who are using their uh, computers or tablets uh, to watch movies or do other things uh, besides work, this creates a difficult situation. It does. It does. And, of course, it has implications. And, and, and this won't surprise you, Max. We have a piece on Runway Girl about this very topic. Um, <laughs> the implications for the in-flight entertainment and connectivity industry, which, as somebody wrote uh, uh, yesterday, you know, now this is niche, you know. <laughs> we've given, we've dove all the way down to like, how does this affect the content? How does this affect the connectivity? And interestingly enough, of course, this is going to have a, a rather, if it, if it lasts for a lengthy period of time, uh, a rather meaningful impact on, for example, in-flight connectivity. Because as you say, business travelers like to get work done on their laptop, and uh, they also like to have the access of connectivity on that laptop, and that changes the game there. Um, also, and this is uh, what, uh, what our contributor uh, Seth Miller wrote yesterday, those airlines that um, don't have very robust uh, in-flight entertainment content libraries may want to consider stocking up now in light of the fact that um, you know, a lot of passengers won't be able to rely on perhaps their traditional means of entertaining themselves in flight, um, which is kind of remarkable in light of the fact that our last podcast, Max, we were talking about, you know, <laughs> New York Times predicting the end of embedded IFE. <laughs> right. Suddenly, the embedded IFE is back uh, back at the fore. So it's it's fascinating from that standpoint. Obviously, an angle that we're tracking, um, but but the broader implication for for passengers, and indeed, uh, you know, these airlines in Muslim majority countries. Um, yeah, are, are pretty stark. 
All right. Well, we could probably uh, talk about this topic for the entire episode, yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, let's move on and uh, talk about Cathay Pacific and some problems that they're trying to grapple with uh, concerning business class seats on their new Airbus A350-900s. Now, we see the fit and finish of this product is nothing shy of shocking. John, uh, you highlighted some of the issues in a piece for Runway Girl Network, had some really interesting photographs to demonstrate what you were talking about. What's the problem with these uh, seats? Well, frankly, Max, they're just badly made and they should never have been accepted for use. Um, so the, the background to this is that over the last couple of years, Zodiac Aerospace, um, which is one of the larger conglomerates in seating, has had a lot of production problems, um, both in terms of speed, um, in terms of capacity, and in terms of fit and finish. You may recall that uh, Qatar Airways CEO Akbar Baker rejected at least one and possibly more A350s because, among other things, the laboratory doors did not close. (laughs) That's a problem. That was an experience. Right. And that was an experience that I had on this Cathay Cathay Pacific flight. Um, So... As we delve deep into the nitty-gritty here, so these uh, aircraft started being delivered uh, last summer Northern Hemisphere, um, so to June-July time. When they were delivered, um, the first people on board were saying, hang on, these seats are in terrible condition, it's brand new, right? Um, a, uh, uh, a French new media journalist that I follow, uh, pseudonym uh, Tyler Berth, um, called them des sièges indignes, these unacceptable, unworthy seats <laughs> on the A350. The aircraft I was on was delivered from the factory in August. It was Cathay's fifth. And, um, you know, I just flew them a couple of weeks ago and it's already unacceptably damaged. So, for example, the various components of the seat do not fit flush together. So where it's supposed to be a single curve, you've got the leather trim sticking out and the plastic receding. Um, a section in the seat in front of me had separated from the bulkhead wall, exposing raw materials for like a good half an inch. You know, the laminated surfaces are, are terrible. I mean, they're, they're, they look really cheap and they're peeling. There's a lot of sharp plastic edges, um, particularly on the armrest. Um, you know, I give myself a good scrape up the side of my arm on, on, uh, when I'm rolling over. Um, that's just, it's, it's, it's not okay. Weirdly, a whole section of the shrouding, about the size of my laptop bag, literally fell off the seat onto the floor as I adjusted the seat. Yeah. Oh, my God. Um, I was aghast, absolutely aghast. It's not confidence-inducing in any way. It is not. It is not confidence-inducing I mean, at all. I mean, I, no one has mentioned really the word safety, but did, did you feel that this was a seat that would keep you safe? Um, well, I, that's a very interesting question, isn't it, Mary? Um, because I did note that um, these seats have airbags in the wall rather mm. than airbags in the seat belt. Um, and uh, thinking back on it, actually, I am, you know, I, I I wish I could say I were entirely confident that the airbag would inflate um, in every seat as um, as expected. I'm I'm not sure I could say hand on heart that I would be. Which is a little bit problematic, isn't it? Now, I hope that what's happened um, is that uh, Cathay Pacific, which has an excellent safety record and a very strong safety culture, has, you know, been focusing on ensuring the safety is up to scratch, even if the fit and finish and appearance of things might not be. Um, and I, I think that would be a reasonable assumption based on, you know, Cathay's reputation and um, and the professionals that they have there. Um, but I did note that they're... Uh, general manager of product was in touch with us at Runway Girl Network 
admitting this is a known issue. They're very sorry to their passengers and they're working on it. Yeah, that was fascinating. That Zodiac will be replacing the entire set of business class aircraft as business class seats on affected aircraft. Mm. Um, now, I have a lot of follow up questions to them, as I'm sure you would imagine, because, you know, how many aircraft is this? Uh, how long will it take? What, what else is going to happen? Um, does it include the lavatories with the, with the doors that don't properly close? But yeah, to say that Zodiac is having to do that, that is going to be a serious, serious amount of cold, hard euros that someone's going to have to be spending. And just when we thought that Zodiac was kind of turning a corner, um, you know, they've grappled with issues for now a number of years. Um, it, it all started rolling. Well, actually, they've had labor issues on both sides of the pond, but there were some very public ones, uh, you know, out of Texas. And, and something that I remember an aircraft interiors uh, expert saying to me um, with respect to that operation was that they were seeing kind of a lot in the way of traveled work and seats in um, what you would call the seat uh, hospital. <laughs> where the seat comes off the line, it doesn't quite meet snuff and um, it needs to be uh, taken care of over at the seat hospital. That was all economy class seats, but it just seems like there's just been the cascade of problems at Zodiac. And they literally, I mean, they were just saying that they were turning a corner just, what was it, a month or two ago. And now all these reports about the Cathay product has emerged. Well, and the same with United. United chose a Zodiac product based on the Sky Lounge uh, family, which is the same family on Emirates A380s and uh, ANA's uh, 777s at Long Haul, and I think also some of their 787s. Um, and the really interesting thing for me is that we think that, that Zodiac has all has, has turned this corner, but then Oscar Munoz comes out in the United's earnings in United's earnings call and says, actually, they're seriously delayed. We're very upset and very unhappy, and it's a real problem. It's a real problem for Zodiac. And still, Safran seems to be continuing their interest in in Zodiac. Oh, the phrase throwing good money after bad has never felt so appropriate, frankly, Max. Goodness me. Um, yeah, I, I, I fail to see how further consolidation in the industry will solve a problem which is essentially over-consolidation, right? Um, you know, Zodiac has been you know, snapping up everyone from Sigma to Weber to 360, and not being able to produce the seats. So it's an opening for the other seat makers, um, but, but not all of them have been entirely without fault either. Um, you know, BE Aerospace loves to say how reliable it is, but it wasn't able to certify Virgin Australia's seats in time and cost them a six-month to a year rollout delay on their long-haul business class fleet. And that's maybe 15 aircraft, probably a little less, um, that's not a huge, huge order. So it is going back to this whole problem of the industry having too few players of too great a size and there not being enough options to, to, for anyone to take any other, other, other actions. It's, it's an issue. All right. Well, let's talk about the Aircraft Interiors Expo in Hamburg. That's coming up in April, early April. We're expecting quite a torrent of PaxX content to emerge from the show. John, are you making any predictions as to the products and trends that might emerge? Well, I have my crystal ball right here, Max. Um, <laughs> so, I, okay, I have 
uh, yeah, a few things that I'm that I'm sort of seeing in terms of what the uh, what the scuttlebutt is, um, what the uh, who the invitations to press releases are come uh, to uh, press conferences are coming for, and so on and so forth. Um, it seems to me we will see more evolving fully featured seats. So um, the sort of thing you'd see on a, a long haul and premium short haul carrier with it. entertainment and power and IFE holders and all that jazz. Um, we'll see more of those coming from the seat makers that we've previously thought of as the low-cost, bare-bones LCC suppliers. That's actually, I think, a very good thing, um, because it's a lot easier to add things to a bare-bones seat which maximises space than it is to take things away from a non-bare-bones slimline seat and try and keep the space while actually also shrinking the seat pitch and shrinking the seat width. It's the same kind of thing where I've been. Fl- I was flying around Australia quite a bit. Um, flew on Tiger Air three times, which is a local equivalent of Spirit or Ryanair or similar. Um, and I would have paid actual cash money for your your Acro or your Recaro slimline to give me that extra couple of inches knee room, even at the same pitch. As it would, I, I, I had to sit to side saddle like the dainty Downton Abbey maiden that I am not um, in order to fit my knees in, <laughs> right? Um, it wasn't a hips problem, it was a knees problem because 29 inches is not enough for normally sized passengers these days. So there's, there's a fully featured seats thing coming from slimline manufacturers will be very interesting. John, can I jump in right there and say, this is really kind of, it's interesting because in, in line with our conversation about Zodiac and about the, uh, the fact that the industry may be overconsolidated, but then you have a situation where some of these guys are coming in and they're going to help fill a need then, truly. They're going to be able to have conversations with airlines that perhaps they wouldn't have had in the past because they can say, look, we will be able to give you that type of one-on-one special attention to make sure that this program is exactly as you want it and is on track. This will be our focus. So there's opportunity now because of what's happening in the market, Absolutely. would you say? I think that you know, if, if you're one of the established players, um, your reputation is based on producing what airlines need at the volumes they want them to time, to budget, and at pace. You know, Emirates has a, a uh, an order for premium economy seats for 250 aircraft worth of premium economy seats. Mm-hmm. Who's going to fill those, right? Who has the capacity in this industry to, to fill that many aircraft at what I'm sure, given it's Emirates, will be a fairly brisk uh, speed, right? I definitely think, though, that if you're an airline, you're saying, well, actually, Zodiac, you haven't delivered on the reason that I would look to you, which is capacity and reliability. So what do I lose by going with one of these smaller suppliers? You know, what do I lose by going with someone like Mirus, right? Um, Mirus has orders for, you know, a, a massive number of seats from AirAsia. At what point does someone say, actually, those guys seem to be delivering fine. Tony Fernandez isn't, hap- isn't unhappy, um, but Oscar Munoz is. So who am I going to pick at that point, right? Yeah, it really does open it up. But uh, I guess in addition, in addition to that, I'd, I'd probably, you know, again, returning to my crystal ball, um, I think this is the year we're going to see some movement around narrow body premium classes, right? So that the pointy end of those smaller, not to rehash a phrase, but that middle of market type of aircraft, um, especially as uh, airlines are starting to make really firm decisions about their forthcoming A321neo and A321LR, which is the, the Neo with the extra fuel tanks for the transatlantic type mission. I think we're going to start seeing uh, carriers try to be more imaginative, perhaps, than they have been in the past. 
Um, I think that we're going to see, um, you know, whereas before you might, we, you know, if you look at the 757, right, the long haul 757s on, on all three American carriers are exactly the same seat. And if you saw a black and white picture and you didn't see any words of the airline brand, you couldn't tell whether it was Delta American or United, right? It just looks like BE Diamond. Yeah, pretty stock version, you know, basically the same product. I think we're going to see airlines starting to do more with that um, and, and more with that sort of seat. John, in economy class, of course, the, the slim lines are going through their own evolution. And um, there are some shining stars, I have to say. And having had the pleasure of flying uh, on one of those shining stars, the Acro slim line on Allegiant recently, it is rather profound what Acro has been able to achieve in terms of carving out so much so much of that kind of back end so that you've got room for your knees, even on a rather tight pitch. Uh, do you see Acro as one of those kind of uh, rising stars uh, in the crop? Sure, I absolutely do. Um, I have a lot of time for what Acro is doing. Um, I remember, when was it, 2013, 2014, that Mary Kirby mm. stands on Acro uh, half-size tray table shot. <laughs> right? I mean, they, they have built a robust product. It carried my full weight, yeah, John. Look, it carried full weight. And, then, and then Jason Rabinowitz did it the next year. And I think Seth also, Seth Miller also is still on that. Those things can take a beating and keep on, I don't know, take a beating and keep on seating. <laughs> that's that's going to find good. its way into a headline here then. Okay, that's good stuff. <sighs> but as more airlines have been basically turning old seats from... 30 or 31 into 29 we're like actually if this is the world that we live in i would pay actual cash money for one of these um acro type seats um i would much rather have that than uh than an old seat that takes one or two inches of my 29 out on my knees i wrote a very interesting piece um following the uh aircraft interiors asia last autumn in the northern hemisphere um and they're moving into the premium economy market quite strongly now. And that will be very interesting to see how that goes. And also their, their evolution of their economy seats too. Um, I think we're going to see them uh, start to talk more about what they can do for, um, for carriers who aren't Allegiant um, and uh, who aren't perhaps you know, just Hawaiian. Because Hawaiian also has them on the 717 uh, for the inter-island hops. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, which for a flight of what twenty minutes max forty five? That's a very reasonable, very reasonable product. Easy in, easy out. You don't need a full tray table. You know. Yeah, it is actually. It is. It is. It is. Uh, from an in-flight entertainment standpoint, of course, we're also going to see an evolution in messaging. What can you tell us about that? Well, yeah. I mean, I think that what we're going to be seeing at AIX and IFE is a lot of people really starting to break down those barriers between narrow body and wide body. Um, and I think that's going, to be, that's going to be smart, right? Now, I don't know what your thoughts are, Mary, on why that's happening um, and, and how it's going to, going to look. But yeah, it's, it's interesting to me how I'm already starting to see some public statements about, you know, you can use this on either a 777 or an A320, you know? Yeah, they seem to be getting a bit more flexible in that regard. Um, and of course, we have kind of an avalanche of wireless in-flight entertainment companies, um, and some of them actually making some gains, particularly, say, for example, with the low-cost carriers in Europe. Um, and that's something that, uh, you know, 
is interesting to watch. Um, I think that with the embedded guys, we're now down to three. You know, there's been a few that have exited mm. uh, this business. Lumexis is one of them. And of course, Rockwell Collins' recent announcement as well, though it didn't have a very large footprint in uh, Seedpack um, after kind of not developing uh, IFE for the A380 and the 787. But Rockwell still had a bit of a presence. They're out. Uh, Lumexis is out. So you've got Panasonic, Talus, and Zodiac in-flight innovation sort of duking it out in the embedded IFE space. And I think the one thing that has become clear is that they are all going to need to be uh, more flexible uh, and be able to bring content to airlines faster. I think that those are kind of obvious ones. Uh, And also, you know, I guess the big question is, will we see a premier carrier on long-haul routes ultimately go into a wireless world. I personally think it's going to take some time, but John, I mean, I guess never say never, right? It's a big no for me if I'm going to have to pack my iPad into the cold, right? I mean, that's that's, that's not going to be particularly useful. But no, I mean, look, only really at this point, there's there's only the... um, a very small number of airlines in that situation with um, wide-body aircraft without IFE. Philippine Airlines is one of them, isn't it? They they did the uh, wireless on long long haul wide bodies along with those stacked uh, yeah, sleepers. Yeah, yeah. Philippine, yeah, <laughs> which now to an extent um, rolling back slightly. Yes, they are, and they've faced a lot yeah, of complaints. Yeah, we know. Fair enough. <laughs> um, you know, nine abreast A three thirties are pretty terrible, even before you had to bring your own entertainment. Not sure you could actually get your, your a large iPad across the seat back of one of those, um, but but no. The um, mm. I think what you'll see is there will be outliers such as Scoot, where you know they say, "Hey, everyone, just bring your phone and you know pay us two bucks for a movie, or you know watch your own and charge us for the power, <laughs> the, the in seat power on top." I cannot believe Mary did actually make cash money on that. You have to hand your five Singapore dollars to the flight attendant. I am sure that it is worth more of her time to walk to the back of the cabin, type in your number on the system and for the, for the you know, magic power to start flowing. <laughs> then it's just, just give everyone power. Max, did you know that? Did you know that, that, that Scoot, is, Scoot actually uh, has, has broken its ancillary revenue down to actually selling power, in power? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's out of control. I think it's out of control. Let's talk about squeezing that stone. Yes, yes. <laughs> I do think that there is there is scope to reduce a lot of weight in the cabin by you know taking out some of the wiring, and we're seeing this as part of the Crystal Cabin Awards this year. Um, there are two companies with uh, wiring reduction plans, right? And will that be one of the things that means that that actually saves the in-seat IFE screen potentially? But at the same time, it's not just about the hardware; it's about the content. I was on a carrier the other day, which will remain remain nameless. Um, And I was watching Moana, that excellent new Disney movie. Great romp, ideal for for your in-flight entertainment. But it looked like I was watching on my, you know, 18-inch screen, a 480p YouTube version. Because, as I suspect, the airline did not pay a very small amount, right? They were talking dollars for the high-def version for the largest screens that they offer in business class. So they'll have, they'll have spent on these business class seats probably an extra ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars for the larger screens, but they haven't spent the one dollar on a movie that looks good on it. <laughs> it's a real disconnect, yes. really and yeah. truly. Yeah. It's the old difference between your, your capital expenditure and your operational expenditure, right? 
while they don't have to match, they at least have to be in the same ballpark. And I think that with a lot of airlines, that still isn't the case. You know, and that's that's shown in either things like like that example, or um, airlines that have taken uh, a system like Panasonic's EX3 or late model EX2, right? But they haven't bothered to update the user interface. They probably made the decision in 2009 before the iPad came out. The plane was delivered in 2012 or 2013. It's four or five years old, so there's still four or five years to go. But it feels like you're flicking through it on an old Nokia dumb phone, on a system which can actually, if you just spend a little bit of money on the on a new skin for the uh, either Linux or Android, depending uh, system, it can look and act like an iPad. Um, Swiss have done that. Uh, Finnair have done that. To an extent, Qantas and Air New Zealand have done that. But it, it's it's that lack of joined up thinking that's a real problem uh, on the infrared entertainment side these days. Some of the most stunning, actually, uh, UX design is coming from the airline in-house operations, isn't it? You mentioned Finnair, um, you know, where they they really make it a focus. And then they work with the in-flight entertainment uh, manufacturer to kind of take that IFE to the next level. Do you think we're going to see more of that, John, in terms of the airlines are kind of like, okay, this is going to be what we're going to do in-house working with the IFE company? Or do you think they'll hand it over and say, you you build us our, our GUI? I think it'll be both. Um, it doesn't surprise me that Finnair is up mm. there first. Um, obviously, you know, um, with all of the uh, experience from Nokia that they had and um, and indeed the fact that, you know, Nokia then sort of basically fell apart and is sort of appears to be slightly returning from the ashes. Um, but there's a lot of experience in Finland, you know, in order to be able to do that, right? I think that your very large carriers probably have the capacity and desire to do it in-house to reduce the number of um, externals that they involve in this. Um, it would make sense for the entertainment suppliers to have a real push on this and to kind of create almost a, an, in, an in-house consultancy kind of uh, function mm-hmm. within their uh, within their operations, which says goes out to us and says, you have this version. Here's what it looks like now. For X thousand dollars, we can make that version look like this version, right? And you show them a, a Finnair on New Zealand or whatever. That seems to me the answer to go out and say, look, we know that you're not user interface designers, product people, right? We know that previously you've left that to us. That thing never got updated, or if it did, it was, you know, six years in at some major cabin upgrade. But actually, you can squeeze out the life of your old IFE system, um, as Virgin Australia, uh, sorry, as Virgin America did, when in that big upgrade of its its original system, for actually what's a very limited capital expenditure investment. Um, so, you know, I, I really think that there is a market there for um, for, for the IFE providers. Um, now, does it have to be your Panasonic Avionics, your Talus and your Zodiac uh, in-flight? Probably. Um, you know, that, they're the ones who probably have to do it, or they have to work with someone who can do it, right? Some startup that basically goes out and does this for everyone. And of course, they're the ones that have the line fit offerability um, with the airframers, which is, uh, of course really crucial right now um it can make or break yeah you know sure can um you know and and as we've seen while the oems the airframers are starting to open up a little bit on letting new things into their catalogs and uh, onto their factory floors it is still something of a closed shop and uh, that can be problematic for people trying to do new and interesting things in this industry well what do you think mary 
That's, <laughs> I think that's a lot to digest, Max. <laughs> Yeah, I think that uh, you know, I think that it's 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 been fascinating to watch this uh, industry evolve as it has. Um, I guess I would say one thing, and and you know, it's the drum I bang regularly. My concern with you know some of the seats that we've seen, particularly, uh, you know. And I would say, kind of fascinatingly, from some of the big aircraft interiors companies like the BEs and the Zodiacs, some of those ultra slimline seats are actually not always that comfortable. Um, you know, I, I flew United recently, and I'm I'm not a big fan of the Recaro slimline. So I'm hopeful that they're going to come to a point whereby, okay, there is a slimline profile, but there is a that added comfort option where they're putting a bit of comfort back. Do you know what I mean, John? Where you can kind of, uh, you can order the comfort upgrade. I'm hoping that more and more airlines do that because we actually have seen somewhat of a backlash with some of these slimlines. And, uh, well, plenty of forums that are dedicated to being upset about this very item that where they feel that it's it's tight and um, oftentimes it's uh, what pitch the airline has pitched the seats at but I do think that there has been a sort of lowest common denominator uh, reached on some of these slim lines um, that I would hope to see a bit more in the way of comfort and yet we have somebody showing this year a 27 inch slim line at AIX um, <laughs> I can't, cannot wait for that one <laughs> Ah, well, you can put it to the test, John. I will be going to see if they have actually managed to make any comfort innovations or whether innovation is around delethalization. Right, because part of the problem with yeah. these slim seats is that your head in a crash impacts the seat at a different point than if you're an inch or two back. Right, so a lot of the innovation is around right. making them safe um, rather than around making yeah. them comfy. Uh, and the FAA believes that the closer the seat is to your head, actually, the safer it is. Um, I had a conversation uh, with the FAA a while ago about yeah, this. Yeah, well, unless it manages to give you a good old uppercut as your uh, head slams down in the crash, um, at which point yeah, exactly you date, right? So <laughs> there are various nuances around this, um, which make it super complex, mm-hmm. but actually also super interesting. And it does leave a lot of opportunity for companies who can walk that line between cost and space and comfort and for the uh, airline accountants shall we say who, uh, who who like the sound of more space for less money yes the bean counters dream well unfortunately we are rapidly coming to a close but we want to thank our listeners and remember you can find us online at runwaygirlnetwork.com and on itunes be sure to follow all the Runway Girl Network activity on Twitter at at Girl. And remember to use the PexX hashtag when tweeting about the passenger experience. Join in the conversation. It is an international conversation now. I'd like to reiterate our thanks to our sponsor, eGate Solutions. And I'd like to thank John for being our guest. John, where can listeners find you at? Well, you can find me on Twitter at thatjohn, uh, online at walton.travel, that's W-A-L-T-O-N dot travel. And of course, on Runway Girl Network. Uh, drop me an email anytime. I'm john at runwaygirlnetwork.com. And if you'll be at the Aircraft Interiors Expo, do come say hello. Um, I'm usually passing at speed, but uh, I'm fairly unmissable, as I'll probably be the only person there with bright purple hair um so yeah always always love talking to listeners and and runway girl network readers it's a, it's a real pleasure so do say hello please great john thanks again and thanks for bringing so much insight into this episode oh, my pleasure we'll ask all of you to join us again next time as we talk about the passenger experience on the pax x podcast take care everyone mm-hmm.